3: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol, or the Northern Irish Protocol,
1: fully implemented.
0: I'm going to miss
1: being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Bielan, RTE's
0: Correspondent in London.
1: And I'm Colm Mongoyne,
4: RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin.
1: This week, another plunge in relations over the Northern Ireland Protocol, as the UK once again announces it will decide itself on how to implement the Protocol and the European Commission once again threatens legal action.
0: We'll examine how things deteriorated so quickly as the war of words deepens.
4: And we'll remind listeners that the protocol grace periods are not the only ones in town. The UK has been applying its own grace periods for food imports and custom formalities, and they're running out in April and July.
1: We'll hear from a customs expert on how things have been going so far for Irish companies and how tricky they're going to get. And speaking of food,
0: we've uncovered a curious tale of reverse colonisation, as a British gourmet food store in Belgium avoids closure by stocking gouty rashers and super value
4: milk. But first, people in Ireland were greeted to the sound of a very angry Simon Coveney yesterday morning as Britain unilaterally announced extensions to the grace periods in the Northern Ireland protocol. Let's hear from him first.
3: Well, I mean, the difficulty is that the British government has changed their approach. Uh, And uh, unfortunately, what this means is that the EU, I think, certainly see, and, and this is not the first time this has happened, Uh, that they are negotiating with a a partner that they simply can't trust. Uh, And and that's why the EU is now looking at legal options and legal action, uh, which effectively means a much more formalized and rigid negotiation process, as opposed to a process of partnership where you try to solve problems together. And so this is really unwelcome. Uh, It's the British government essentially breaking the protocol, breaking their own commitments again, um, and... Uh, And the EU having to then consider how they respond to that, while at the same time ensuring that in practical terms, the protocol can be implemented. So, you know, ironically, some of the things that the British government have now unilaterally decided to announce, the Irish government has been advocating for in Brussels. And in my view, we were making progress on. But the way in which the British government has done this, which essentially is to ignore the commitments that they've made, the relationships that they have built Uh, with the EU side and instead to make decisions on the basis of politics in Westminster uh, and uh, in terms of some relationships, presumably in Northern Ireland as well, they have decided to act unilaterally, Mm -hmm. which is clearly in breach of the protocol and the commitments that have been made only a few weeks ago. I mean, don't forget, in a joint committee, in a formal statement at the end of that committee 10 days ago, the UK side committed to implementing the protocol properly uh, to, to implementing what had been agreed in December between both sides in writing and to work together to, to interact with business leaders in Northern Ireland more thoroughly uh, to try to solve problems. And now we have a couple of weeks later uh, with a new person in charge taking a different direction um, uh, and, you know, leaving the EU with no option. Uh, but to look at legal options.
4: Tony, to you first. Simon Coveney is saying that there seemed to be a change in British approach. Ireland was beavering away behind the scenes with its colleagues in Brussels trying to achieve some flexibility on Northern Ireland. Things seemed to be moving. The Joint Committee was restoring faith after previous disruptions to trust in UK-British relations. And then this torpedoed it and it seemed to coincide with the arrival of David Frost as the point man in relations with Europe. Discuss.
1: Yes, Colm, all of the arrows point to a significant change in approach by David Frost, uh, who started work this week on Monday as the the new leader of the UK policy on Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. He's going to be the UK's representative on the Partnership Council, which will manage relations with the EU as a whole. Uh, in implementing the trade agreement, uh, and also he's going to be uh, the UK person on the Joint Committee, which, as we know, manages the Northern Ireland Protocol, and things took uh, a turn for the worse this week when the UK, for a second time, uh, announced it would do something unilaterally on the protocol, uh, and that has caused all sorts of conniptions uh, in Brussels and, and uh, sent relations into a tailspin. And that, as you say, it was a very angry uh, Simon Coveney uh, on Morning Ireland on Thursday morning. Um, I mean, the preamble to this, we've just been discussing that a lot. This a lot on the proto- on the podcast. Uh, both sides reached an agreement in December which seemed to wrap up all of the difficult issues around the protocol. Yeah, The two grace periods were agreed, one for export health certificates, that's the sort of expensive and cumbersome certificate that needs to accompany any products of animal origin coming into Northern Ireland from GB. Uh, another grace period governing sausages, mints, uh, unfrozen prepared meals and so on. Uh, that's a six month grace period. And in, in return, the UK would have to comply with, with a few things. Um, uh, but that was all agreed in December, and everybody looked forward to the, the protocol actually finally taking effect on the 1st of January. But then, of course, we've had a chapter of mishaps and flare-ups. And this is the latest one. Um, and, of course, the biggest one, of course, before that, was the Article 16 affair at the end of January. But by and large, both sides did seem to be lowering the temperature coming up to this week, and there had been a sequence of meetings involving Michael Gove, who had been the UK's person on the protocol, uh, and Maros shevchevich the EU's person on the protocol. They had been having a number of video conferences. They had a personal meeting in London on the 11th of February, and then, then they had a full joint committee meeting on the 24th of February. And they were working on a plan to get some kind of fix on the supermarkets issue. How do you get large volumes of food across the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland supermarkets and retail outlets without it being expensive or unfeasibly cumbersome for people? And the plan that was being hatched, uh, at least on the UK side, was that supermarkets would work up a plan funded by the British government to have a very high-tech, high-spec digital surveillance system so you could have very upscaled Surveillance and traceability of food. And that would, in essence, do the job that the European Commission does in terms of making sure food is safe, making sure that if there's a problem with food, you know where it comes from, you know how to stop it in its tracks. While the EU hadn't said, yes, that's fine, we'll take that and we'll have an extension to the grace period for you to work on that, they were saying, you know, okay, let's look at it and show us how it's going to work, give us milestones, give us tangibles. But in the meantime, the quid pro quo here was that the UK had to implement what was agreed in December. Things like a simplified export health certificate, things like giving the EU access to their IT system for customs. Uh, And that was the way things were going. But then suddenly on Wednesday of this week, The Secretary of State from Northern Ireland went into the House of Commons and said, we are going to do this by ourselves. We are going to unilaterally extend the grace period until the 1st of October. And that has caused uh, all sorts of uh, anger and fury in Dublin and Brussels.
4: Right. Sean, while fans of nominative determinism may be keen to pin the blame for securing the contents of Northern Ireland's chill cabinets on David Frost the Financial Times today quoting Downing Street and saying that uh, number 10 is insisting it was Michael Gove who had indicated that they would take this approach and that it's not down to David Frost and that they've been signalling this might be on the cards for some weeks.
0: Well they say they've been signalling it all right but the signals seem to have been pretty faint or not uh, understood at all in the places that they were intended to be received in namely Dublin and Brussels because it did come as a A bolt from the blue uh, as far as they were concerned and they really didn't think that the British would do something like this. I mean the, the interpretation of it has been that certainly being put about by Dublin and some in the commission anyway was that these concessions were on their way to being sorted out an extension of the uh, grace periods was on their way to being sorted out in the joint committee process that the British knew that they were going to get it and basically took a short corner as one of our colleagues uh, Tommy Gorman put it uh, and just jumped in and said right we'll have that right now let's not wait for this process to be gone through. It's convenient of course to be able to blame uh, Michael Gove who was uh, left the process and say it wasn't David Frost who's the, the new man in the job, but David Frost was uh, sitting across that uh, video conference, uh, the last video conference that uh, Michael Gove had with Mara Shevchevich. There were plenty of others involved on that call as well. So you know, if, if there was signalling going on, maybe Mr. Gove was doing the signalling, maybe he was doing it discreetly, maybe it was uh, Lord Frost who was doing the signalling, who knows, but yeah. uh, most people are looking at the, the change of regime a new man in the job and saying that the the, the coincidence is uh, just too much the other thing of course was that it was all covered up by the british budget Uh, last time we were talking on this podcast we mentioned the british budget was coming up this week good day Uh, to bury a story in any country yeah little (laughs) did we expect that there would be this uh, particular hand grenade unleashed and lobbed into the mix of brexit any time this week, let alone on that particular day. Uh, And, of course, we also had the uh, Nicola Sturgeon's Day of Evidence to the Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry in Scotland going on. So you had two big humdinger domestic news stories going on into a little gap in the middle. You had Brandon Lewis coming into the House of Commons and announcing this. So, of course, nobody uh, in Britain paid any attention to it at all uh, on Wednesday. Starting to get a little bit of traction by Thursday night, but really not very much. And now, uh, of course, we have a, a nurse's pay row has taken hold of the British domestic agenda. So this one has just slipped through the cracks, I think, right. uh, on the British uh, but, but side. Whatever about the ructions it's causing in Brussels and certainly
4: in Ireland. It comes at a cost to Ireland though Tony as well doesn't it because Simon Coveney was indicating that there was some political capital being expended by Ireland in terms of trying to achieve flexibilities and then this happens behind their back and they're burnt and the political capital is already burnt and they're left with egg on their face.
1: Yeah because the Irish government is in a uniquely tricky situation here. It it has to manage Northern Ireland uh, in an ongoing basis and it has to manage its relationship with with Brussels and and the commission and of course you know Ireland has been granted four and a half years of of understanding from member states and the EU institutions with first the backstop and then the the protocol you know w- w- Ireland has achieved its diplomatic goal of no hard border but the you know there is a groundswell of opposition and discontentment in Northern Ireland about the effect of the protocol and the 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 burdens and the costs of doing business and getting stuff in from GB. And if the UK does something which makes that easy, even if it's an underhand action by the UK, it's hard for the Irish government to come out and criticise the UK for something that will make life easier for ordinary people and ordinary traders. And that's why I think initially Dublin was trying to figure out how it would react. But then I think when the details of how this event emerged and the fact that David Frost didn't have apparently have the courtesy to call Maros Shevchevich to tell him in advance this was coming down the tracks. What happened was that a, an official in London called a counterpart in Brussels to say there was going to be some kind of announcement on grace periods, but as far as I'm aware, not much more information than that. So that didn't filter up to Maros Shevchevich until he saw it the next day and given that there was a hotline created by both sides last December to deal with exactly this kind of situation. uh, People are very annoyed at, at how this has happened and it seemed kind of calculated given that as we have been saying there was a track that both sides were on which which was most likely going to deliver a solution, perhaps not the kind of solution that the UK wanted, but you know, you don't get everything in life. And and that this was just simply thrown in there as a kind of uh, perhaps some kind of declaration that there's a new sheriff in town. Right, but and that's uh, the way things are going to be. The
4: UK in, uh, in it laying out its rationale for this move, and the British ambassador is writing in the Irish Times today said the rationale is that the protocol was signed in order to achieve as little impact as possible on the everyday life of communities in Northern Ireland. It's consistent with that. It's temporary. It's taken in good faith, and it's lawful.
1: Yeah, I mean th- that's the defence that you that you get when you speak to UK officials. You know, look. The whole point of the protocol is that it should, you know, minimize or there should be minimal disruption to the lives of people in Northern Ireland as far as possible. Um, That's a tricky one because it's kind of an open ended license to dilute the effect of the protocol, you know, ad infinitum until it becomes meaningless. And it's also something that is not it's not an article in the protocol itself it doesn't have that kind of legal weight it's in the preamble so it's uh it's more of an aspiration that both sides have signed up to but you know there, there's obviously the eu would look at it and say yes of course we will be as pragmatic and flexible as we can and i think what has made officials so annoyed in brussels is that when the internal market bill bombshell dropped in september they didn't stop talking to the UK. They kept the joint committee process going, and eventually both sides reached what the EU felt was uh, the final wrap up of all the problems in the December agreement that was that was reached on the eighth of December. Um, uh, and you know, the, and they felt that all of the flexibilities that were there had been agreed in good faith, and now the UK was just looking for more. Uh, and then, again, dropping this bombshell of doing things, of going on this right. unilateral uh, track.
4: Sean, I heard uh, Peter Foster from the Financial Times speaking to Brian Dobson on the News at 1 on RT earlier. And his point was, well, how did we get from a situation where Arlene Foster was selling the best of both worlds aspects of the Northern Ireland protocol to a position where she's following the traditional unionist voice wing of unionism stroke loyalism and saying the whole protocol must go it's an intolerable situation it's a threat to the union
0: probably because every supermarket or pretty much every supermarket that isn't Aldi and Lidl in northern ireland had difficulties getting goods in and there are problems getting parcels uh, across uh, from great britain into northern ireland and Parcel difficulty means Amazon delivery difficulties. So this is something that touches pretty much every single household in in Northern Ireland. Everybody buys food. Lots of people order stuff uh, to be delivered. And uh, if they're being told, sorry, you live in Northern Ireland, we're not gonna deliver your parcel to you, and you can't get your favorite food stuff in the supermarkets, and you're being told it's because of Brexit, well, pretty soon you've got a major problem with the entire population. And you've got an election going to come up at some stage and you've got a party that's absolutely going for your throat and looking to to, uh, capitalise on the uh, situation. That's going to move you pretty swiftly uh, off your position of trying to sell best of both worlds and trying to make the best of of it for your own uh, political uh, party situation into having to go with the rest of them and go into uh, opposition mode. People have pointed out this is more or less a recurring pattern in uh, unionist politics in Northern Ireland, but it is a difficulty for them. If somebody moves sufficiently far in one direction, it does impel the rest of them. I mean, we've seen the uh, Ulster Unionist Party, traditionally much more moderate than the DUP, also going off in the direction that has been set by the TUV and uh, more laterally we've had this uh, loyalist representative council saying they're not going to operate the Good Friday Agreement anymore. So it has really become very very toxic very very quickly uh, in Northern Ireland Uh, and they are pointing constantly at the uh, uh, Northern Ireland protocol but now they're fanning it out into uh, more general attacks on the EU. Arlene Foster was on BBC Radio this morning And one of the things she was doing was linking it to the EU's vaccine politique and saying that the EU in its quest for vaccines had triggered Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We've talked about this at length previously. And she said uh, she considers that a hostile act against Northern Ireland. But it wasn't the only example because yesterday we had a case where Italy had blocked the export of Italian-made vaccines to Australia, a move endorsed by the European Union. Ms. Foster said, it was another EU move to just grab vaccines. And this is the kind of uh, organisation it is. It's interested only in protecting the bloc, not in protecting Northern Ireland or the Good Friday Agreement. So she's right. been hostile towards the EU and basing a part of her attack on the vaccine policy. And again, this does go back, I'm afraid, to things that we've talked about previously, that move in late January to activate, albeit only for three hours, Article 16, that opened the door, uh, as we said it did at the time, to continuing attacks. And you hear that a lot now in Britain, that the EU uh, tried to block vaccines into Britain, tried to interfere with the Northern Ireland agreement. And there's constantly a drumbeat in the British media of the EU is doing badly on vaccines, That's all you hear. You don't hear about other countries, hardly at all. uh, Or the the fact that France and Germany have now changed their policy on administering AstraZeneca vaccine to over 65s. Well, we haven't heard about Canada, which was operating a similar policy. We don't hear about America not having authorised the AstraZeneca vaccine either. It's always about attacking the EU. So Mm. Brexit... Has gone on. It's just Brexit by other means now. Sean, uh, yeah, and
1: also just to, just to, to pick up on that point, Sean. I mean, those who attack the EU's vaccine rollout policy, uh, you know, th- th- that's there to be criticised because the EU simply didn't have enough vaccines. The supplies were not coming on when people thought they were coming on from AstraZeneca. But when Italy tries to prevent that kind of thing happening by stopping those vaccines from going to Australia, then they're also criticised for that. So yeah, there, there's, it is. You're right. It's it's a, a kind of a it's it's one lens through which the EU is being viewed, and vaccines and Brexit and the protocol are all kind of being bundled together as part of a of a critique. Uh, and I think you know for that reason. The Commission has been trying to find out a way to fix some of those problems. Shevcevic had been meeting business organisations. He proposed meeting supermarkets. He proposed uh, to meet uh, hauliers, port operators. Sources that I've spoken to said that the UK basically disregarded those requests for for that latter meeting. And, you know, there is a suspicion that, you know, this is a long-term strategy to keep the pressure up on the protocol, keep the confrontational spirit going, that ultimately you would degrade and downgrade the protocol as much as possible until it becomes unworkable. And I think that is a worry that is out there now that David Frost uh, has taken over. Right. It, it could be wrong, but you know I think some people are starting to wonder, is that what the overall strategy is?
4: But if the immediate proximate worry in the part of unionism is, is that there's an unduly pernickety approach being taken to enforce the integrity of the single market and that's causing a sense or a concern within unionism that Northern Ireland is more isolated from the UK than ever with enforcement action now potentially on the cards by Europe the trust lost and the European Union unlikely to depart from a very uh, rigid enforcement of single market obligations it's, it's not really going to get any better in the near no. term is it?
1: No it's not and I think that's why this is this is a worrying moment because it comes when we just have three weeks of the uh, the grace period left for for, for export health certificates, for, for food products coming in, and at a time when member states were already sceptical about the UK's intentions. And it is, again, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's very important to remember that it's not within Maros Shevchevich's gift to simply work up a solution with David Frost or Michael Gove, uh, and hey presto, we move on. We have a deal. He's got to run this by member states, by national capitals, and they are increasingly frustrated at the UK and what they see as, you know, a deliberate and let's not forget the European Parliament,
4: of, uh, which doesn't like to be ignored and has yet to actually ratify. Yes, the, Europe, the, yeah, the European
1: Parliament has said it has decided to postpone its decision on when to ratify the trade and cooperation agreement uh, in protest at the UK's actions. Now, I don't think they're going to hold up the thing altogether, but it just makes life a lot more difficult for Shevchevich to pursue an agreement that will, you know, soften the edges of the protocol as far as possible, but do it within a framework that member states can live with. And uh, one other perhaps final point to make on this is that there are noises, and I've heard them from... You know, large influential member states who say there are two issues here after this uh, development this week. One is the legal action that the European Commission can take. The second question is will there be a material impact on the integrity of the single market if we can't trust the UK to apply the protocol? And that means one thing, and that one thing is checks and controls on goods coming from the island of Ireland. Uh, as one diplomat I spoke to referred it to as Ireland having yellow pack membership of the single market. And um, we're not at that stage yet, but people are wondering: is that where this is going? Because if if the sorry, if the just to be me- clear
4: about that point, for anybody mm. in Ireland, basically thinking, you know checks on sausages etc is it worth the hassle in Northern Ireland can you not just leave them alone let it flow and let it go that's been met in some quarters in Brussels at least with well if that's the approach you want we can move the checks on exports from Ireland into Ross Lair coming to mainland Europe because if we can't trust what's going into Northern Ireland without the effect of checks being taken then somebody has to answer for what leaves the island of Ireland
1: yeah I mean like put simply Member states are not going to tolerate a hole in the single market, even if unionists and the British government say there's no risk to the single market. So these are only goods coming into Northern Ireland supermarkets. These are dead end hosts. Yes, of course, that's that's true. But the view in Brussels is, you know, markets adapt to ambiguous situations and we're not going to take that risk, not only for our own self-interest as members of of an internal uh, internal market but also the EU would say we have trade agreements with third countries around the world Uh, and on the basis of those trade agreements third countries trust what the EU sells and what is coming into the EU so therefore there's another reason why this cannot be a grey zone that is not properly monitored and policed. And again, the single market works because not because people trust each other spontaneously, it works because people follow the same rules. And if the UK is outside that that framework, then there's a problem. And that's what the what that's what the protocol is there to, to try and uh, resolve.
4: We've spent much of the conversation talking about David Frost and his diplomatic approach. Sean, you were tuned into another former UK diplomat today.
0: That's right, Sir Ivan Rogers. Uh, back again. Ivan the Credible, as somebody on Twitter has called him. Uh, he was um, taking part in a conference, a two-day conference run by Dublin City University's Brexit Institute. And he was talking with uh, about, uh, as you would expect, a lot of these uh, current problems and uh, he very much lays the blame uh, at the door of David Frost. Uh, He says he's got a very confrontational approach and this is to be expected and he also um, diverged I thought from Dennis Staunton who uh, has a a very good uh, piece on uh, Lord Frost in the Irish Times today Uh, but uh, Dennis was uh, speculating as to how long he might last in the job if he proves to be an embarrassment for uh, Boris Johnson who uh, is moving towards a new friendlier less confrontational style in the wake of the departure of Dominic Cummings and the rise to uh, prominence of a new friendlier female group uh, within number 10 but uh, Ivan Rogers, who used to work for Boris Johnson when he was the Foreign Secretary said no no this isn't the case at all Boris Johnson is very hardcore on the type of Brexit he wants. He says there's no point in having Brexit unless you can diverge. So he will be looking for more divergence. The word is already out in all the uh, Whitehall departments. Go and look for areas that we can diverge from the EU on. So there is going to be more and more of this divergence issue coming up. And he reckons David Frost is going to take a, a confrontational approach, will have no real incentive to cooperate with the EU through the Partnership Council and staff up the committees, there's something like 19 different uh, sectoral committees within that to sort out issues at a technical level in the trade and cooperation agreement, that future relationship between Britain and the EU, that really there isn't much incentive on the British side to do anything about that and he rather fears for the agreement. He, He agreed with a lot of the other speakers in this seminar who think the agreement is fairly fragile and he thinks that unless the two sides get together really soon and start to knock out a few really very simple, very small, easy win-win side deals to get the ball rolling and start to build a little bit of trust into this relationship, that things could get much worse than they are now. He thinks that uh, it's at an absolute standstill now. Um, It's in the deep freeze uh, and that it really needs very, very urgent action to build around something and get some kind of modicum of trust back into the to the agreement but he doesn't see any sign of that happening right Right. now and he doesn't see any incentive (laughs) for david (laughs) frost to do it and he doesn't think boris johnson is going to start looking for it he says johnson is now in a much stronger position than he was six months ago and uh, again we're seeing opinion polls this week because again of the vaccination program in britain he's riding high in the polls and uh, has no need to start kowtowing to the eu and that's why you get things like this unilateral action in, in defense of the great british sausage but other things he thinks are going to follow from that as well and it's going to be tough 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 from now on
4: right okay well we can't actually promise a, a dose of optimism in the next section can we tony it's, it's more hardship we're talking to
1: to carol Lynch about. <laughs> why else do people tune in yeah i mean it, We are, we've been talking a lot about grace periods uh, in Northern Ireland, but there are other grace periods and that refers to the fact that the UK haven't put their own full set of checks and controls on goods coming into the UK after the 1st of January. They've staggered those checks and controls, so on the 1st of April they will start applying their own SPS food safety animal health checks and controls on goods uh, coming into the UK most importantly from Ireland because Ireland exports a huge amount of food uh, to the UK and that's going to be problematic for people and then on the 1st of July they're going to apply the full set of customs formalities as well so to explain all this I've been talking to Carol Lynch who is a trade and global investment expert with BDO Ireland. It's a consultancy and she knows everything that you need to know on Brexit and exports and customs and so on. So I asked her about these new obligations that are coming down the tracks for Irish companies. Carol Lynch, very good to talk to you again on Brexit Republic. Since we last spoke, Brexit has happened. Uh, It's been what over two months now. The, The new regime is in place from your vantage point, how are things going so far? I'd say a mixed picture, really.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. Certainly the first two weeks in January were pretty horrendous. And insofar as uh, goods were stuck, couldn't get out of the UK, um, people trying to adapt to the new requirements for import declarations and what's called PBNs and ENSs and as well. Can the you just certs.
1: describe what those are for people? Yeah, so
2: if you're... Yeah for you if you're importing um into Ireland you need customs declaration. So, customs declaration needs to get lodged with the revenue Um, and that's our customs document but at the same time you also need a safety and security document which your haulier will lodge and that's as it says giving the safety and security information to revenue in advance of goods arriving in the country and those two are linked by what's called an MRN number which is a SAD number or customs declaration number and that number then needs to go into a pre-boarding notification which is our PBN which is like a virtual envelope containing all the documents in it so even though they say there's one formal customs declaration there's actually three documents or three virtual documents required um, in order to be able to get on the boat in the UK so if you've got goods that are traveling from a UK port let's say Hollyhead to Dublin um, you won't actually be able to get on the ferry in Hollyhead without having your PBN which contains your MRN, your customs declaration, your ENS. So there's quite a lot there. And that all had to be done two hours in advance of getting to the port. And, and because those people...
1: Are, those are things that the supplier has to do from the UK or or the importer?
2: Um, that's the for the importer. So this is called a pre-lodgement model. And um, it was to avoid delays, avoid as much as possible delays at the ports in Ireland. So it's for the company who's acting as the importers. If I'm buying goods from the UK, I have to lodge those declarations with Irish revenue, but they have to be lodged before you leave the UK. So they have to be with the Irish revenue before you got on the boat in the UK.
1: And are there... Costs involved as well for for those formalities?
2: Yes, uh, not from revenue, but from whoever's doing the clearance for you. So typically you'll have a cost for the customs clearance document itself of around 50, 60 euros. You'll have a charge for the entry summary declaration from the haulier. I'm not sure what the hauliers are charging um, for that. And then there might be a charge for the pre-boarding notification. So all in all, you could be paying an extra 75 euros a load for your imports um, into Ireland. And that's, you know, that's probably, it's not it's not good, but it's, it's re- you know, possibly management if you've got it manageable, if you've got a container of goods. But a lot of, of, of products coming into Ireland are coming under what is called groupage, which means that you might have a couple of pallets and a number of companies would have their pallets on a trailer. Um, so you won't have a full load, you'll just have a couple of pallets. So 75 euros on the value of a pallet could be, could be quite high.
1: Yeah, of course. And that envelope with those three requirements, does that apply also to food imports? Because, of course, you have the sanitary and phytosanitary requirements there.
2: So if you're a food importer, you've got an extra layer of things to do. So every importer must do the customs declaration with the PBN, e EN, and S. Food importers have another layer to go through. Um, so if, I, if you're an importer of food of animal origin or plant based products, um, what you have to do is you must get a health cert from your UK supplier, which they need to get from, from a vet. And that needs to be lodged in um, what's called the traces system in with the Department of Agriculture here. And then you need to get... Um, a authorization, a shed authorization from the Department of Agriculture. You must That's do that C- twenty four hours.
1: you think, isn't it?
2: CHED, yes, exactly.
1: Yeah. And um, what does that stand that, for again? I think you've got
2: me on that. <laughs> Too many,
1: too many acronyms. It's to, obviously to do with agri-food imports. So we, we yeah. can move on then to... Okay. Um, nobody will fault you, Carol, for for <laughs> dropping out of one uh, one particular acron- acronym. As you say, there are so many. And yeah, uh, thankfully, Colm has just texted me to say that it's a common health entry document. If, if Thank you. If people were on the edge of their seats there wondering what that <laughs> acronym was. Uh, so I'm glad we've, uh, we've sorted that one out. We've
2: sorted that out. <laughs>
1: yeah. But with all of this extra burden in the in the early weeks i think there were reports that trucks just weren't leaving the uk to come to ireland because they weren't getting in or they weren't even leaving depots
2: yeah Uh, and we're still seeing that um we still have a number of trucks still in the uk still haven't moved and they're you know with food products and um, expiry dates that's becoming a little bit more critical but it's certainly for, the first, for January, a lot of products got, just didn't, didn't leave the UK. It was just too complicated. But we still got a backup of, of trucks that are sitting there. And in addition, you have um, the risk of paying customs duties. So what, one of the things that came out of the trade agreement, which was totally unexpected, was that if you are importing European goods, um, but they've gone to a distribution center, in the UK, then they can lose their EU status and ha- you have to pay customs duty on those coming back mm. into Europe. So that's, that's right. caused yeah. a lot of delays as people kind of wait it, um, are, are waiting to see how to handle that.
1: Right. And at this stage, is it possible to determine if because of these extra costs and obligations, people are turning away from certain supply chains? They are looking for importers from the, the European Union directly? Are there any definable patterns emerging?
2: Yes, certainly for shipments either to mainland Europe or from mainland Europe, the easiest route, even though it takes longer, is to go around the UK. So you're seeing a huge increase in ferry capacity and capability through Ross Lair, for example. So you're not having to go through the whole land bridge situation in the UK, which is just incredibly painful Um, and going to get more painful with effect from 1st of July. So definitely seeing that rerouting around the UK land bridge as opposed to continuing to come through the UK.
1: Okay, so I think we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming up, Carol, from the 1st of April, uh, a very important sort of milestone in this first year of Brexit. But just, I mean, f- would you f- sort of c- recap for us the the general sense that you get of how things are at this stage, t- two months in? Are, are people starting to get used to the new regime or is it still very disruptive?
2: No, uh, people are starting to get used to it. It's like everything. I think, um, you know, you can prepare as much as possible um, in terms of theory and, and kind of knew what theory was going to be on first of January, but it's quite, quite different when you're actually operationally having to um, provide for it, when you're actually having to do the work as opposed to kind of plan it. Um, so the first you know, the first month was difficult, second month, probably a little less so um, and you're really now getting into kind of, I wouldn't say it's not business as usual um, because it's certainly a lot more complicated and taking an awful lot longer, but the once the processes are set up, people know what to do they know what they and they know to build in that extra time in shipping goods you know you're not going to have your overnight deliveries anymore and they know about the additional costs so um, it is starting to you know calm a little now the only thing is that a lot of people didn't ship in January and only started shipping in February or only starting shipping next month we're seeing like a lot of people who didn't ship in January and February starting to plan their shipments in March. So they're kind of at the beginning of the, of the chain again. But it is, it is I think it is settling down. Um, there is a process. It's just a matter of following the process. And once you do that, everything should run smoothly. It's, um, it's, it's not knowing it or it's not preparing or thinking that everything's gonna work okay on your first entry is where the difficulty lies. So certainly for the first time you do your import declaration, you really need to give yourself some time because that's gonna be a lot more complicated than you expect
1: i think it's worth pointing out carol that while there has been a grace period in northern ireland which obviously hit the hit the news this week there was no grace period for the south of ireland in terms of importing food products from the uk to fill yeah. supermarket shelves in ireland it's the export health certificate is, is the big the big sort of expensive cumbersome uh, document has that had any big time effect on Irish supermarkets or retailers?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely has. Um, Like even, you know, when we're in January, when we're getting a lot of what's called red routing. So basically when you import goods through customs, you're going to get a green routing, which means you're good to go, an orange routing, which means that the document's going to be checked, or a red routing where the whole container is stopped and doesn't move. And red routings wouldn't have typically been that common. Um, In in January, there was about 50% of goods coming through and the ports were red routed. And probably most of those were food products because the health certs weren't correct or they were um, issued to the wrong country or they were out of date. So that has had a huge impact um, and a huge cost on importers. And you find often as well that it's the, the supplier who has a lot of the responsibility for uh, those health certs and those declarations. And this is an issue we're gonna see on, on the UK side, because um, Irish companies delivering to UK um, supermarkets and and the multiples um, are are mostly under pressure to to deliver on what's called a duty paid basis, which means they're fully responsible for delivering basically to the door. And that means they have to take responsibility for all the import declarations and the health certs. Um, And that is is a significant cost um, between both the customs clearance side and the veterinary check side.
1: Okay, so that sets up nicely the next part of what we'll talk about, which is the the fact that the UK hasn't put in place the whole uh, panoply of checks and controls from the 1st of January. They're, they have effectively decided to ease those controls in over a six-month period. But the first uh, set of controls will come in on the 1st of April, so that's going to be a big moment for... Irish companies exporting to the UK. Can you just tell us what's going to happen then?
2: Yeah, so um, as in from 1st of April, the full, I say, health control checks are going to come into a place for food of animal origin, plant-based products. They will be kind of the, the two main um, products that would be, be affected and, then, and some other uh, composite products. But mostly it's, it's products of animal origin and plant-based products that are going to be affected. And that means that you can't import into the UK without having um, a registration with the UK Department of Agriculture, without lodging your um, advanced declarations. And you need to get an export health search from the Department of Agriculture here. So there's quite a process to go through in, in actually just being able to import your goods into Ireland, or sorry, into the UK um, going forward. So you'll also need to make sure you have um, sufficient time that you, you know, you give the the department of agriculture in the UK sufficient notice. So you need to find out for your products, what that notice is. Um, You need to determine if you need to, you will need to register, but you, you, probably are going to need to be um, established in the UK to be registered with the Department of Agriculture. Um, so if, you, if you're if you not established, you may need to talk to your customer and they may need to be the registered party or your agent may need to be the registered party. So um, quite a lot of work to do between, I suppose, now and 1st of April, which is only the end of this month, um, mm. in terms of actually preparing that, again, that logistics trail so that you actually have all the steps in order that you know your advanced notification requirements and that you, you really need to, to actually just make sure that you are going to be able to import your food products into the UK in the first place.
1: Right, that's a lot of work. I mean, are people prepared, do you think?
2: I can see people starting to panic, to be honest. And um, We're getting a lot of queries at the moment in relation to what the implications of this are going to be. So people are just kind of coming out of the first crisis, which is, say, the import into Ireland situation. And now the next crisis that's hitting is how do we ship our goods into the UK? So um, in video, like, we're, we'd be getting a lot of companies. Now, we would have been getting a lot of companies, say UK clients, looking to establish in Ireland in advance of the 1 January deadline for imports into Ireland. And now we're seeing the same in reverse. where We're getting a lot of queries from Irish companies saying, do we need to look at our requirements in the UK? Do we need to look at establishing? Do we need to have a VAT registration? What about the health service and registrations with the Department of Agriculture? How's that going to impact then on on tax doing you know how much substance needs to be there so there's a lot of of, of things to think true because the other issue you've got to face is when you're importing into the uk from first of july you are now going to need to make a full customs import declaration so that was up between first of january and 30th of june the uk could have introduced controls on this transitional sort of basis so you didn't need to make a full customs declaration and you could defer the declaration and defer the payment of any duties that all stops on one july and with effect from one july a full customs import declaration needs to be made And your customs duties will need to be paid in order to lodge that customs declaration you need an agent and that agent needs to be established in the uk now the difficulty where people face here is that agents customs clearance agents rarely act on behalf of a non-established entity so you're an irish company you're delivering to your your customer in the uk they're saying delivered to me at the at the door you have to act as the importer you have to get an agent to lodge those declarations but if you're not a uk established company you're going to find that very difficult.
1: Mm. That sounds like a lot of big challenges coming up.
2: It is, and it's a repeat, really, of the challenges that in Ireland up to up to 1 January. Say from from um, the other side, only insofar as in leading up to the 1 January deadline here, we didn't have all the facts. Um, we didn't know about the trade agreement really till the last minute, for example. Whereas all the facts are there now. We know exactly not only do we know exactly what's required, but we also know exactly what the pitfalls are going to be because we saw them here in January and February. So it's a rerun and it's going to take place on 1 July. And similarly to where where we see trucks being held in UK ports and not being able to leave because they didn't have the right documentation, I do expect we're going to see the same in reverse, that trucks are going to arrive at the ports, they're not going to have the correct documentation to get on the ferries to enable them to leave Ireland to get to the UK. And you know that's obviously you, you don't want that, and particularly if your food products are perishable, that is really um, then it becomes really critical.
1: Yeah, I, supp- I suppose the question is, will this whole process simply be too much for companies, and they will, in a sense, just turn away from that kind of trade with the UK? You know, obviously, our closest trading partner.
2: It's always a worry, I think, for companies. But at the same time, oh, I suppose what I always say is we traded with the UK in this with this these type of this type of paperwork right up to 1992. So you know, it's really it's relatively recent in the bigger picture that the um, we had the single market and the ability to trade freely. So we we did have to do it before. Most countries will trade with their closest neighbour. It is definitely painful and it is definitely more expensive. But once you get the process working, then then it's fine. Then it just becomes business as usual. And it's very hard to turn away from your closest market.
1: Carol Lynch, who's a partner with BDO Ireland and a specialist in customs and international trade services. Thanks so much again, Carol, for coming on to Brexit Republic and sharing your knowledge with us. You're welcome.
4: All right, that's uh, Carol Lynch, BDO Brexit expert, God help her. Tony, you were cutting a package as we record this on Friday earlier today about somewhere Sean might have visited in his time in Brussels. I don't know, Sean, if you were nostalgic for foodstuffs from the islands when you were when you were in Brussels or if this shop was already open. Tony, tell us about what the problem with shopping for British goods in Brussels is and how the Irish have come to the rescue.
1: Yeah. So there's a famous, iconic British supermarket called Stone Manor, which is in a place called Everberg, a little village uh, outside, about 20 minutes outside Brussels. Sean might know it uh, from his time here. And it's a full full supermarket uh, stocked with uh, Waitrose cuisine. It was a bit of a slice of British gourmet heaven for homesick, hungry British expats working in the institutions. Did you ever here. did you ever
4: don the brown brogues and push a trolley down the aisles of the aforementioned supermarket, Sean?
1: No,
0: I visited it once uh, out <laughs> of curiosity. Um, uh, along an with anthropological family, uh, mission. Stingy.
1: <laughs> stingy.
0: It's not a question of stingy. It was an awful schlep from the city centre out after that. And, and to be honest, I, I have uh, no, not much taste for uh, a lot of these foods that are, are sort of iconic brands in Britain. I thought it was expensive and uh, I I wasn't in the mood for paying large money for a bottle of Bovril. Got everything I needed in the the local uh, supermarkets uh, in Brussels. I lived literally next door to a bakery. Really, there was nothing out there for me. uh, Definitely. Anyway, Tony...
1: So, yeah, so they were hit really hard on the 1st of uh, January because food is classically hard hit by Brexit because of the SPS rules, the paperwork. Food supplies were either... Not travelling at all, they were being turned back or they were being held up at customs and Stone Manor, which has been operating for nearly 40 years, it has a British telephone box outside the entrance, it has a, a Union Jack flag next to the EU flag don't see that too often these days, and a uh, an old British London taxi draped in the Union uh, colours. But they were starting to close several days a week uh, and they closed for a week and a half and they were confronting the possibility of going under altogether because they simply couldn't get supplies from the UK. But they got in touch with the Musgrave Group, which group in Ireland, which owns Super Value and other outlets and they agreed a contract to ship Irish food in that would travel all the way from Rosslare, a 24 hour sea journey to Dunkirk, and the old Dunkirk spirit, meaning that two containers of Irish food arrived at the supermarket this morning, Stone Manor, and all those empty shelves were suddenly filled with bacon, super value soup milk Irish milk cheese butter the whole works and uh, yeah they were very pleased and they were saying that's the way they're going to go they're, without these Irish contracts they would have to close down and what once was a British gourmet supermarket looks like by degrees it's going to be taken over as an Irish uh, gourmet supermarket so not sure if they're going to fly the Irish flag outside we'll have to wait and see alright see your speech <laughs> well, we are can, you just hungry no
4: no no I'm not <laughs> What's coming up in your neck of the woods in the coming week, Sean, apart from more uh, antipathy, no doubt, and diplomatic jousting?
0: Well, that's exactly what I've got to watch for. I mean, we've seen what happened in the first week uh, of Lord Frost as a cabinet minister. Now we await the second week to see what happens. Can they uh, pull this one uh, around? Will it get smoothed out and sorted out? Or will it get worse, as Ivan Rogers fears? Or will something else take over? I mean, as I say, nurses' pay is now top of the... uh, agenda here in the domestic media in Britain and uh, when nurses are in the firing line, uh, well, everything else takes a back seat Fair enough Tony
1: Yeah so in the next week the big question is are both sides going to get back to the table David Frost and Mara Sheftovich did speak by phone on Wednesday night but there was no mention of a joint committee meeting before the end of March or a specialised committee meeting either which is the sort of technical side of things so I'm I'm led to believe that officials are still in contact, and but they'll, ha- they'll have to do something to get this relationship back on track because legal action is imminent, I'm told. The European Commission could issue an infringement procedure against the UK. They could take them to the European Court of Justice. Yes, even though they're outside the EU, that can still happen under the protocol. They could also take action through the withdrawal agreement's own dispute settlement uh, mechanism, which provides for arbitration. And if the UK doesn't follow any binding arbitration then you could be in a scenario of uh, tariffs being imposed uh, imposed by the EU on, on the UK if, if, if they don't fix this particular problem. That's obviously a good bit down the track and it probably won't happen but the Commission is pretty serious about this so that's something we'll be looking out for next week.
4: Okay, that's it from me Colm O'Wongain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan RTE's
1: Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.